chance to look at it through other people's eyes. Take some time and reflect on what you believe in your soul. Cause that is the key to life. You gotta let the negativity go. Hello and welcome to another episode of the What the Fox podcast with your hosts, Lindsay Fox and Amber Ross. Super pumped to chat with you today. We've got two wonderful special guests and I am going to allow Lindsay to introduce them to you. Thank you, Amber. I am thrilled to introduce these guests. So today we have Dr. Naisha Douglas from Greensboro, North Carolina joining us. She's an adjunct professor in the sports management department over at Fayetteville State University. Uh, she has her doctorate in educational leadership from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where she's also an assistant researcher for the AGEP project, um, which perhaps y'all will touch on later on today. I'm not sure, but we'll find out. And then next, we have Dr. Marianne LaGreco, um, who studies how people talk about food. So full disclosure, I happen to know Dr. Marianne LaGreco because she was my professor in undergrad over at UNCG, UNC Greensboro, uh, where she's an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies and also a graduate of both Arizona State and Bradley Universities. So Marianne has received numerous awards from the National Communication Association and the International Association for Research on service, on service learning and community engagement for work on mobilizing communities to address food insecurity. So along with Dr. Douglas, she has authored the book, Everybody Eats, Communication and the Paths to Food Justice, which chronicles eight different case studies regarding community efforts to build more equitable food systems. So there's a lot there. And also, I mean, I know that uh, Marianne is quite humble about this, but she also is a TEDx speaker, which is um, something so cool. And I will boast for you on that. <laughs> I think it is so cool. TEDx is like the grass, the grassroots level of a, like a TED talk. So we will definitely link that information in today's show notes. Absolutely. And we are absolutely thrilled for y'all to be here. I know I said that before, but truly thank you for spending time with us. I know we talked about this a little bit before, um, but instead of doing traditional interview, I'm very rarely anything Lindsay and I do is traditional. So why <laughs> not that. just bust it out and have um, a myth busting type discussion today? You folks shared with us a couple of the top myths that people believe about food insecurity, um, popular topics, I apologize, that so society enjoys, I'm going to say enjoys with um, air quotes talking about as far as in food insecurity and what we hyper focus in on. And today we're kind of going to blow some of those out of the water and take the conversation several steps further. So looking forward to that. And I think um, the first myth that I wanted to bring up with y'all today is um, if we just open a grocery store, everything will be fine. I know I've heard this as far as food insecurity, you bring the food to where the people are in the grocery store setting, and then it fixes the problem. But I think y'all have shared with me um, a little bit about how this is just not even scratching the surface and totally off base. So I'd love to hear more from you about that. Absolutely. Um, well, I know Naisha and I are both really excited to be here as well to talk a little bit about this. And Maybe to give you a bit of a sense of what we're dealing with when it comes to food insecurity, that would be helpful because then it'll help us unpack that idea of if you just open a grocery store, everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah there's absolutely. a lot of layers. Yeah, there's a, there's lot, a lot, of lot of layers, layers to this topic. And so we're going to so squeeze in what we can. Yeah, if your listeners aren't familiar with food insecurity, it's the idea that people don't have easy access and can't afford food that is close by them or near to them. And so sometimes you'll find people going anywhere from a mile to 10 miles to get to a grocery store. Um, sometimes you'll find low-income neighborhoods that don't have easy access to either grocery stores or convenience stores that carry healthy foods or farmer's markets. And it's becoming an increasing problem across the US. Uh, we've started to see numbers climb, particularly starting around 2007 to 2010, we started to see some numbers of food insecurity rise to the point where one in six adults and one in four kids across most major metropolitan areas in the U.S. were struggling with food insecurity. So and this is pre-COVID. I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to emphasize here, this is The irony is yeah. that uh, things actually started to get a little bit better, better. right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit and we're kind of right back where we started from. Oh my gosh. So, Three steps uh, forward, one step back. 
Right. Yeah. Like I, I always tell folks, um, because we have to eat every day, these are conversations we're always going to have to have. This is not right. something that goes away. Sometimes right. I'll compare it with uh, um, another one of the big health communication topics that we talk about in our field is smoking. And so you can get somebody to quit smoking. You can't get someone to quit eating. Like somehow mm. you're still going to have to figure right. out how to eat something. That's right. So these are things that we've got to think about quite a bit. And when you look at the on-paper definitions of food insecurity, it's really about the intersections between access and poverty. Mm -hmm. So it's about the idea that not only do you not have food immediately in your neighborhood, the access side of things, but you also can't necessarily afford the, the food that is close by you or afford to get to the healthier food. That's mm -hmm. right. And I think that's one of the things that Naisha and I explore a little bit more in the book in particular is that we have a tendency to focus on the access side of things. So again, if you just open up a grocery store, everything's going to be fine. That's right. But what a lot of people don't realize is that poverty is almost a bigger driver in all of this. Um, there was some research that was done in New York State starting around 2015, where uh, several different neighborhoods and municipalities got some funding to open up some grocery stores in some of their lower income neighborhoods. Uh, for a while, folks were calling this a food desert. We'll come back to that terminology a little bit later, but opening up grocery stores in what we used to call food deserts. And what they found was people who had a high school education or above, if they had a grocery store open up in their neighborhood, it made a difference in their eating habits and it made a difference in the choices that they were able to make. If they had below a high school education, their eating habits didn't really change all that much. And so it starts to help you realize that education in combination with job security is a big piece of this. And having the financial piece of it in place is really key. And, and I know Naisha has talked about this a little bit more in terms of uh, uh, what's going on specifically in the neighborhood that she grew up in. So I'll, I'll kind of pass that off to her maybe a little bit to talk a little bit about that too. You know what's interesting about that statistic that you just mentioned, um, as far as like having a below a high school level, the habits of those people tended not to change. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, you know, where I learned my food, you know, my food choices from being healthy, I learned it from my grandmother and she didn't have a high school degree. So they had in our neighborhood, I, I was actually just looking at um, some historical relevance to the neighborhood that I grew up in. And then a lot of, we talked about this also, Amiri, and a lot of people had gardens. And so they knew the mm -hmm. importance of um, eating fresh, eating vegetables, eating fruits. They had gardens and fruit trees and nut trees and all of that. So that study, I, I, I would wonder what sample they took um, from this. Yeah. I'm sure age more, has something because, to do with that too. Because you know what, yeah. because, you know, we always talk about, you know, people not having certain level of education, but it does not equate to them not knowing certain things. Right. And I love that you're emphasizing this. I love that you're that, emphasizing this. Right. So we just automatically think just because they didn't graduate from high school, that they don't know how to comprehend, don't understand what's going on in the world, which is absolutely not true. Um, it's more so uh, what, how much, I would say it's more financial to mm -hmm. me. If you can afford, like we talk about this well, if you can afford um, to go to the grocery store and make better choices, then you would do that. But if you cannot, then the choices that you have, you're going to have processed food, you're going to have uh, shelf worthy food that you're going to gravitate towards because you don't have a lot of money um to spend at the grocery store and we know that if you're spending money on fruits and vegetables you know they can get gone real quick and plus they also expire that's right absolutely um, where you know like crackers and and um potato chips and frozen frozen foods don't expire um, i mean they do but not that's as right as, you know what i'm trying to say not shelf, li a shelf life of a uh, right your set your salad's gonna go bad pretty quickly so i mean and, and, <laughs> and if you it, think it, about if it's in those packets, those bag salads, that's going to be even quicker. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but, but so, yeah, so we, we don't really, just because you open up a grocery store in a neighborhood doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to, first of all, it depends on the type of grocery store. 
Now we have. That's right. <laughs> have, you are absolutely right about that. Do you want to comment a little bit more on that? Right. We have uh, several types of grocery stores. You have the upper epsilon, which is Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, right? Under that, you have Publix and Harris Teeter. Um, and then under that, you have Food Lion, Save a Lot, Aldi's. Um, those are the stores typically that people who don't make a lot of money or don't spend a lot of money, they gravitate towards those grocery stores because it's a lot or in Walmart. Ugh, did I forget Walmart? Um, <laughs> um, I wish people could have seen your facial expressions. Right there. <laughs> I, know, I love it. Right. Um, so, you know, those are the places that people tend to gra- gravitate towards because it's cheaper and they can their money can go a lot longer. Plus, they accept mm-hmm. EC. Um, they accept um, WIC, the, the government programs, those, mm-hmm. those stores uh, typically accept those types of um, payment options. I think you've touched on something really key because in um, the way I've heard it described in the past, right? If you build it, they will come. So put a grocery store, fix the problem, boom, move on. Like that savior complex of, I did the thing, I'm going to go do the next thing, but it's not actually fixing the problem. And in the reality, it's creating more problems in a lot of cases. Um, I know you've shared a little bit about what food insecurity is and kind of scratching the surface of that um, major myth or first major myth rather. Um, The second one I'd like to go ahead and pivot to though, because it ties in so nicely in that, um, there's a belief system that we don't actually have a food insecurity problem because food is everywhere. And Naisha, you touched on it. People have gardens. Um, if food is everywhere and you have the ability to grow the food, then there is no problem, right? Not so, right? And even more than that, uh, we had to do a fair amount of convincing of some city and county officials in the early stages of our work. So a lot of convincing. A lot of convincing. Let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody eats, gets into eight different case studies about various different interventions that we did in Greensboro. So everything from urban farms to mobile farmers markets, to community kitchens, food councils, opening up a grocery store in a low-income neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, we go through a lot of, of different things related to that. And it involved a lot of key partnerships. Like that was one of the first things we really had to do was to build some key alliances between folks who lived in the neighborhoods who were most affected and then the city and the county offices, particularly public health departments, but even some county managers and city council members in particular who took a fair amount of convincing that this was a problem that we actually faced. Because when you drive around Greensboro, there are a lot of fast food places and a lot of convenience stores yeah, that are, are in lower income neighborhoods, mm-hmm. but there are not a lot of places where you can get fresher foods, where you can get, Naisha will often say, it takes me way too long to drive to get a salad. And, and that's, a <laughs> isn't very, that very something? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because this is something like nationwide, just to, just to like hone in on this is that yep. I know for the sake of today's podcast, y'all live in Greensboro, North Carolina. So we're talking about Greensboro, but these myths that we're talking about is relevant across the entire country. So many places, so Never. many places. Um, most grocery stores will base where they're going to set up shop based off of what the property values are of the homes in a neighborhood. Absolutely. And that's not to Greensboro. That is something that's a standard practice across the U.S. And so what we end up with is, um, and we talk a little bit about this in the book too, there's a lot of metaphors that ended up getting used um, to talk about the way that we arrange food in neighborhoods. And so we talked a little bit about the idea of food deserts where uh, they're low-income neighborhoods that don't have easy access to, to grocery stores. But then folks spun some metaphors off of that. And so mm-hmm. we also have this idea of a food swamp where there are a lot of calories that are available in a particular neighborhood, mm. but they're of particularly poor quality. And so you'll see, now I do believe that you can get some decent qu- uh, quality calories from the occasional fast food place. So I don't want to completely demonize sure. that. Like some people fair. need convenient food and yeah. maybe if we can figure out ways to make it even healthier, that would be better. Um, <laughs> but- uh, uh, Yes, please. Yes, right? right. <laughs> and so- We'll see a lot of places, though, that don't prioritize healthier food options. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's because of a myth that the business owners are assuming that the folks in that neighborhood don't want to buy the healthier food. They want to have the the high calorie foods that are sometimes not always that great for them. 
And so trying to convince some of those city and county leaders early on that this was really an issue that we needed to address was difficult because they would look around and they'd say, oh, if I drive down Summit Avenue, you know, there's a McDonald's mm -hmm. there, there's a Compare Foods, there's a, a, a basically everything but a Chick-fil-A and a Hardee's. Like they've got a Sonic, <laughs> they've got a Wendy's, they've got a Taco Bell, they got a Mrs. Winners, like everything. And it's all within two blocks of each other. Like you could mm -hmm. walk to each of, you could fast food restaurant hop for a night and never be bored. And so convincing them that that's not necessarily the kind of food that we're talking about. And right. that if we only have yep. particular kinds of calories set up in particular kinds of neighborhoods, then you really are creating some structural barriers for poor people in their attempts to eat healthier and, and live a healthy life and have at the very least equitable access yeah. to people with absolutely so. well, and one that. thing I know, I'm sorry, Lindsay, it's okay. Go ahead. No, one you're thing good. I know to be sure, like that I'm 100% sure of when I eat better, I feel better. When I feel better, I can do better work. When I can do better work, I get further at work. And yeah. it's also interconnected. So when you set it up in such a way that all you have access to is, um, I'm going to call them low value foods because calories are not created equal just because it's high calorie doesn't make it um, unhealthy, yeah. but low value foods you're setting everything up for failure. You have no general ability to live as healthy, happy, strong of a life if you're not able to access that food as easily as the next person or the next town or the next neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, right. I, I was just gonna say, um, not just fast food places on it in the area of Marianne, but chicken places, like you have, you know, KFC, Popeyes, and Bojangles, and like all of these different chicken places, as if you know, gas stations that have their own chicken places. That right, have, that's right. Have their own chicken. Don't get me wrong, but right, but yeah, um, if there is an assumption that poor people only want to eat fried chicken, only want to eat chicken, like that's like the cheapest meat, apparently. So, um, but it's like right, you which, know, but also when when we eat better, so instead of like it being like a high calorie thing for me it's like a low nutritional value that mm -hmm. you have because you're not you can get uh, avocado has a lot of calories in it but right. it it does uh it's a healthy fat and it's, it's very very good for you versus um if you were to eat like a york peppermint patty which is low in calories but it has a lot of sugar in it so mm -hmm. um so when we think about food it's not just about how the transmission of food is set up but like we really got to think about what we put in our bodies and I'm constantly telling my daughter this also like you know you're an athlete you gotta eat breakfast you gotta continue to replenish the nutrients that you lose throughout the day and so when we think about children in school who go to the, the cafeteria to try to have some type of food to eat and a lot of times they don't eat a lot of food at home and so instead of the government or our state saying, okay, we're gonna take charge and we're gonna at least provide something healthy, a healthy op option for our kids so they can learn and they, they'll be able to think in the classroom and they won't be so excited or tired all the time um, because we know that performance, academic performance can be connected to food, what you eat. 100% yes, mm -hmm. not can yeah. be, is. Yes, yes. It's, it's 100%. Yeah. Right. It's, it's connected to food. Like, I mean, just having an apple in the morning or something to give you some type of energy throughout the day, it, it allows your brain to first of all say, oh, thank you. And then another, <laughs> yeah, your blood glucose kind of needs a hit right, in the morning. I it. mean, Right. A hundred percent. And honestly, I, I, the stuff that you're talking about right now, I feel like we could have a whole nother episode on this topic yeah. because there's so <laughs> it honestly, there's so much to be said about it. And, um, it's not talked about enough. I mean, it, I, I know just with a lot of kiddos that I see in my profession, um, honestly, I would probably say out eight out of 10 do not even have breakfast. So, I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a whole nother conversation that we could have on that because it's absolutely relevant. Um, but I do want to come back. Yeah. I just want to say real quickly, some it's of it comes back to that, to that access piece again, where mm -hmm. we assume mm -hmm. that as long as the access is there, that people are going to make the choices that are 
either most healthful or most satisfying for themselves. And Mm -hmm. it's not always the case. Like just talking about schools, for example, there was a really big push push during the Obama administration for the Let's Move campaign to Mm -hmm. really revolutionize the way that we offered food in schools. And I did a lot of my dissertation research around school meal programs. And one of the things I saw was you'd give kids access to more fruits Um, they shut down, uh, things like, uh, vending machines and things like that during the lunch hour, it's part of USDA policy. Um, but what I would often see is that sometimes kids would pay more money just to buy a single serving pizza, as opposed to what was available in the school meal program, or they'd buy the things that were available through the school meal program and they'd throw all the fruit and vegetables away and they just take the milk and the cheeseburger that they were getting. Right. Right. And so it's not just about saying, you know, if you build it, they will come, or if you create it, they will come, or if you give it to them, they will come. Mm -hmm. It's a larger cultural change. And it's more than just about education. As Naisha said earlier, it's not just saying this is what you should do, but it's, it's kind of making it a part of a larger culture of food. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you on that. And not to mention when we're, when we're bringing in kids or teenagers into the picture, we also have to look at where they are cognitively. I mean, oh, yeah. cognitively, right? I mean, when we think about impulse control and what the kid wants, well, I'm going to take that piece of candy or that piece of pizza over that if I don't have <laughs> yep. mom, dad, yep. or grandma telling me yeah. what I need to be eating and hovering over me to like, you know, say how we they had, I had one example that's still so crystal clear to me where, um, that we had one school that changed their portion sizes on things that students could buy. So they used to have giant cookies that were probably the size of your face. And so kids would go and they'd buy a cookie at lunch. Well, they Why changed the portion you? size of it and probably quartered it, you know, so it was now the size of your palm instead of the size of your face, but they didn't limit the number of cookies that kids could buy. And so now instead of buying one cookie, they were walking out of the lunch line with like fistfuls of cookies. And I was like, eh, what are we nice try. So close. Nice try. So close. <laughs> so close. That's actually a great example there. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to move on to our myth number three, uh, which is the fact that low income neighborhoods have no resources. And I think that a part of that myth, uh, Naisha was actually starting to touch on some piece of that too, which is around this idea that low income folks are mostly people of color. I mean, when you start talking about, well, there's all these chicken, you know, uh, fried chicken locations here and there, or they must be black or lazy or this, that, and the other. So I would love for us to dive into this myth because I think it is a huge one that needs to be debunked. So um, I come from the, it's called the Warnersville neighborhood, which is um, the oldest black neighborhood in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, And then those days, um, after um, slavery ended, um, there was a Quaker by the name of um, Warner, who, a Yardley Warner, who wanted to provide a space where uh, newly freed slaves can can live amongst you know themselves and you know continue to grow economically. And so they designated an area in Greensboro, which is called they was known as Warnersville. Um, and during that time there are um, a lot of um, black and brown people who came to Warnersville and they were able to create businesses. They had um, barbershops and farmers markets and grocery stores and movie theaters and, bar- and beauty salons and all, and all of these different uh, types of businesses in this area. And, um, and so they were doing really well until Reconstruction comes in and they rezone and everybody moved out pretty much. And then they, in the middle of the neighborhood, they put um, government housing. And so when they put in, when they brought government housing in, then you you had an influx of other people to come in. And it wasn't just uh, black and brown people where there are also white people and they were immigrants from different um, countries that came to live in the neighborhood. But the assumption is, is that everybody that lives in those in this type of neighborhood doesn't have a high school diploma, um, works um, maybe at fast food or whatever, but that's just simply not the case. Like, I mean, I have neighbors who were engineers and uh, retired teachers and uh, retired um, city officials that are from the neighborhood and came back to live in the neighborhood just because they their parents or their grandparents left them the the house that they grew up in 
And so makes, we makes don't perfect really, sense. Right. We just don't consider that we just automatically assume that just because out, you know, a person lives in a neighborhood that doesn't have a high property value, then that person doesn't make a lot of money, which is not the case at all. Um, there are people that want to live in a neighborhood to hopefully, you know, revitalize it and help revitalize it themselves to attract more people to live in a neighborhood. Um, and so we, when we make these decisions about certain areas in wherever you are, whether you're in Greensboro or Charlotte or Columbia, South Carolina, when we make these these um, these laws and these determinations about certain neighborhoods, we're not really we don't understand first of all you really don't understand who lives in the neighborhood so the first thing you probably need to do is go into the neighborhood yes call a meeting <laughs> you might want to get to know who your <laughs> target assume, audience yeah. is right yes you need to know don't your target assume. audience before you start changing policies because you exactly. don't know who you're working with is that know who you're working with know the different because everybody comes with different skills and different That's techniques right. and you can um, those people can help you in the neighborhoods to get to where you want. For example, me, um, I met uh, Marianne through the um, uh, the Prince of Peace uh, Lutheran Church, which is down the street from my grandmother's house, which is, uh, Marianne's a member of. And so um, I was at the time studying for my doctorate degree, and I was kind of keeping a low profile. I was living with my grandmother. Um, but um, so oh, I got roped in. I was gonna really. say, I'm we pretty sure that's. Yeah, I was gonna say that's most of grad school life too, mind you. Right, being smart. <laughs> exactly, just being low key and reading all those books that I had to read and writing all those papers that I had to write, um, and just really to myself. But um, that's how I got started into food um, insecurity because when I went to one of the meetings and it was almost like, wait, I'm from this neighborhood. I live in this neighborhood. What do you mean we live in a food desert? Mm -hmm. yeah. what do you mean I've always had access to food <clears throat> we've always had food mm. like we've never gone hungry nobody in our little cul-de-sac has ever gone hungry because we make sure that everybody has something to eat mm -hmm. but also people had jobs and they were working they were able to go to you know certain grocery stores so I I personally was kind of taken aback I was like wait this is where I'm from this is you know the neighborhood I, what do you mean <laughs> yeah, set the record straight. Set the right, record let, straight, right? Because it, it's like, like, who are you? Who are you? Uh, yeah, who are you talking about? Right? Because right. it's like who they don't know their survey? people. So in right. this case, it's like what I'm hearing you say is that even the terminology of of labeling these areas as food deserts were essentially reinforcing the very myth that y'all are trying to break. Right. which is the fact that there's really talented people that live in these neighborhoods. There's people right. that have a lot to offer in these neighborhoods and no one's tapping into these resources yet. They're changing policies that they really don't even know who, like who it's going to affect and, and what that ripple effect is going to look like for folks. Right. I, I just kind of remember sitting in some of these meetings. Um, I, I know I probably mentioned this to you, Marianne, and just feeling like, so we're not represented mm -hmm. in these meetings. And I feel like the only reason why you're showing me as much respect as, as you are showing me is because, I mean, I'm a graduate student. And so I can, I can speak well, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I can comprehend, I can, I can, I can, I can talk, you know, I can research and all this stuff. So it made me feel kind of, um, uh, I, it just it just really made me feel uncomfortable because I'm like you it's like I almost felt like I was being used in a way but but I also felt like we needed a voice in our neighborhood and so I would be the goal between between the people that live in the neighborhood and then you know just working with city officials and county officials because they were always all of a sudden everybody came to me well Nisha what are they doing you know such and such we don't want this we don't want that and I'm like, okay, well, yeah, let me that's figure a lot it out. of pressure. That's a lot of pressure to put on one. And I didn't sign up. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You just pull me away from my books. I mean, but for real, I mean, it's like all of a sudden yeah. you're called to action to represent mm -hmm. all of your 
you know, constituents in terms of like, these are your neighbors. These are people maybe right. you grew up with or people that, you know, know or knew your grandmother, you know? So all right. of a sudden there's all this pressure on you to represent an entire population whose voice is not being heard. Mm -hmm. um, and in the process, you're having these systemic policies devalue the very neighborhood that you're, that you're living in and trying to rep and just trying to fight that battle is like, honestly, one person, which kind of brings me to a point of like, in in kind of situations like this um would like in y'all's experience and what y'all have seen and perhaps even nationwide do you think it makes a difference when we encourage our neighbors and so forth to get involved in local government to help you know push their voices and have it heard at those meetings and that sort of thing oh your face i'm not sure what that means <laughs> <laughs> i think it, there's, there's kind of a double-edged sword to it on the one hand because um, like I want to, I want to reiterate something that Naisha said in terms of of not having the representation. But if you're invited to the table and nobody's listening or responding to what you're saying, they've just got you at the table to say, "Oh, look, we have a black person from the Warnersville neighborhood here, and so we're good." Um, that becomes problematic then, and yeah. so. I've had some folks say things like, not only do we need to make sure who's at the table, we need to make sure who's the one who gets to bring the table in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that. that's a really important message. And it, it, uh, it makes me think about some of the work that the Racial Equity Institute does. They're an organization that's based in Greensboro, but they run facilitation workshops nationwide. And they focus a lot on the idea about how something that Naisha alluded to that we've got a lot of people on the outside. So we've got city and county officials. We've got people from more high income neighborhoods. We've got people who work in administration and, and, and things like that, who are looking at lower income neighborhoods, often income uh, neighborhoods that have high concentrations of people of color and these outsiders that are labeling the people on the inside. And so that's really, in the terminology of food deserts actually comes to us from the UK. And there were people on the inside of that neighborhood who kind of came up with that terminology. But as we've appropriated it in the US, it was the USDA who really brought it over um, and said, all right, we're gonna use this as a way to start talking about these neighborhoods that are low income and have low access. But it sets up the idea, just in the use of the word desert, that there are like no resources there. Yeah. And so if we're really going to think about systemic change, it's got to be a completely different way of structuring those conversations to begin with, where we really are letting the folks like from the Warnersville neighborhood lead the conversation and do the work to organize and do the work to say, this is how you should talk about us. Mm -hmm. And we need a partnership with you to figure out how to fill the gaps and the resources that we don't have. But we do have a lot of resources to begin with particularly in terms of our people. Well, I think that really leads in nicely, I agree with you, to the next myth that you shared with us. And that's that poor people in general don't care about their health, because I think we can all agree that's 100% inaccurate. And having the seat at the table, having your voice heard, having somebody sit and validate that you have thoughts and you have ideas and you have methods and ways to overcome the obstacles that are in front of you don't just assume that this area of the population just doesn't give a crap. Right. And I think one thing I want to make sure that that is clear about this particular myth is the way that it's tied to the idea that health is all about individual choices. Mm -hmm. And yes, to a certain extent, your individual choices play into your health. Sure. You know, so at the end of the day, you are choosing to eat something over something else, mm -hmm. even if there are other circumstances that are that make that choice difficult. But it's not all about individual choice. There's so much of it that is structural. And when we reduce it to individual choice, it makes it easier for us to say things like, poor people just don't care about their health, so why should we pay any attention to them anyway? And that's exactly the wrong track to take. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that we wanted to really kind of bust up in all of this is that it's not just about budgeting or making different food choices or, you know, approaching it differently from that individual perspective and assuming that your problems are going to go away. Like there really are some, some larger structural things and barriers that neighborhoods and individuals have to face. Um, 
we recount a story in the book and it was also covered by a local newspaper called Triad City Beat. It's about a woman named Anita Cunningham who lives in the same neighborhood that Naisha does. And she is legally blind as is her husband, as is her granddaughter who they provide the primary care for. And so she's completely reliant on public transportation in order to do any of her shopping. And the two closest places to buy food to her are, there's a Walmart that's probably like what, five miles down one street and then another Walmart that's like four miles up the other street. The way that public transportation in Greensboro is set up to get to either of those, she's got to take a bus to the downtown city center, make a transfer to get to either of those two places. It takes her 45 minutes alone just to get to the place to buy the food, she really let alone do the shopping, food. let alone take the 45 minute trip back. I don't have three hours to do all of my shopping no. on any given day. And so those are really big structural barriers. And she cares a lot about her health. She's done quite a bit to try to figure out how to reimagine some of her favorite foods as healthier recipes. We even included a couple of them in the book at the end. And so she cares very deeply about her health and the health of her family so much that she's willing to take a three hour trip to go get healthier food options for her family. Right. But we really need to take a look at some of those things, some of those structural barriers that I think make it very easy for us to say, oh, if you just spent your time differently, you wouldn't have these same problems. Or if you just budgeted your money differently, you wouldn't have these problems. It's so much more than that. Right. Because even just thinking about the jobs, right? I mean, what if mm -hmm. your job and the hours that you're working, they don't a lot for you to, you know, take yep. the bus um, during those specific times or when, um, I don't know, maybe you're working overnights or what have you. Or I can think of uh, someone that I'm working with uh, who Oh my goodness. I'm just thinking like everything is closed by the time this person is yep. uh, able to get off of work or to mm -hmm. try to get those, those needs met. Um, mm -hmm. It is just like, and, and it is so, I cannot imagine what that must feel like to be in that position to kind of like, just constantly feel like there's all these barriers set up against you. It's like, how do you get ahead if you've got all of this, all of these barriers before you? It's, it's a vicious cycle. And that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the reasons why when you see when black people say uh you know um you know black lives matter or if or if somebody says you know um just giving praise to black love or something like that it's because of what you had to go through to get out your situation to get to a better situation and it's such a vicious cycle for anybody who was poor in this country to try to get out of their situation because especially if you don't have if you live in the south and don't have a car mm. forget it forget it yeah forget you're it you're relying on other people and you're relying on public transportation you're That's absolutely right you are absolutely and right. those and we just now in within the past couple of years in in greensboro had a a bus that would go all the way out near the airport where a lot of people do work so they can take the bus or the um whatever the shuttle to work and back and it's such we don't have the the public transportation type of infrastructure where you can just get on it so we don't have the subway we don't have like um a blue line like there's a what they call a blue line in in charlotte we don't have that like people really have to find creative ways to get to just regular places like the grocery store or even the That's convenience right. store. And because Anita is, she can't drive mm -hmm. and really she could walk, but that would be a bit dangerous for her to walk. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say not safely. Nope. I mean, right. Right. To the grocery store. Cause you're going to have bags in your hands and you know, you, you're coming back home. Like it's just, it's a struggle. It becomes a um, full-time job in of itself. I mean, it really does. Even, we even had to fight some rules with the with the public transportation aspect of things. Uh, City of Greensboro, with their public transportation, used to have a policy that you could only bring two bags, two bags. on a bus. What? And their rationale, um, which was <laughs> never tell. I don't think it was ever Please publicly tell. spoken, but this was privately spoken amongst it's many a, circles. It's about to be public. I hope you understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the assumption of the Call public. This might not have been their rationale, but the assumption of the public was that the reason that they did this was to try to keep the homeless folks from hanging out on the bus all day long. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Like that was that was at least the common public <laughs> assumption. Whether or not that's why the policy went in place 
we can debate that, but at least that was the perception that a lot of voters and a lot of community members had was that. Which doesn't make sense. Right? Yeah. And because it was really hurting a lot of low income folks who- Of course it was. I mean, if, How could it not? Because we've also got, you know, there's groups in Greensboro, the USDA also says this to try to like limit the number of times you have to go shopping in any month in order to save your time and save your funds. And so like, if you're telling somebody on the one hand, only try to go grocery shopping once or twice a month, but you can only bring two bags on the bus. Like that's an impossible situation for somebody to deal with. We now got it up to four bags. Um, so you can now take four bags on the bus. Um, I don't know if they've changed so th this since then, but still it's, those are those kinds of barriers. It's that progress. Think it's about. progress, <laughs> right? It's progress. But I think the question is, yeah. you know, so we see it's a barrier, but um, you know, how, how did y'all get that, those things in place to kind of like push the needle just a little bit to get it from two to four, you know, like you what start, can people do to start having conversations with people multiple. outside of those circles so that you start to get a critical mass of people who agree with you and who you, who all realize this is a really messed up policy. Mm -hmm. And then you take it to the transportation boards. And, and in some cases, the transportation folks didn't think about the unintended consequences right. of their policy. They and so that's why Which it's is, important for us ooh, to have these kinds of conversations. It's such a big them. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, I just wanted to sit in that space for a second when you said that. <laughs> Decisions are made in a vacuum all the time. Yeah, all the time, mm -hmm. all yeah. the time. And so, yeah, we so they really, didn't think about- We really have to go back as citizens and, and civic leaders and say to our, our public offices, hey, do you realize this chain of events that has unfolded because you thought you were making a good policy. Yeah. You don't know well, and what having you don't the know. Courage, right, having the courage to have that conversation and the ability to have that conversation and be heard and be seen and have someone actually take action on that is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think they, when they create things, they don't look at the entire picture. Like you're not thinking about somebody with kids. You're not thinking about somebody who maybe be disabled and they can only get to the grocery hmm. store once a, once a month. I mean, can no, we be honest and look at the people who are generally creating these laws and policies? Yeah. Can we, yeah. can we, I mean, I'm just going to point out the elephant in the room, but generally speaking, they are middle-aged white men, probably middle-class or upper middle-class. They're mm -hmm. not thinking about all of those things per se. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's usually coming down to, to revenue and whatever the budget is and et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. They're not looking at all of these little nuanced pieces, which is why having your voice heard is a necessity, you know, rallying yeah. that neighborhood together and having y'all all at the table is a necessity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I agree. So, I mean, uh, I guess we could go on and on about that. Yeah, I was going to say that one, I'll get a little, could, you know, <laughs> my blood pressure got a that's little. That's the nerve. You get a there. nerve, Marianne. Man, Lindsay, Lindsay's getting What's fiery over there. I get so, <laughs> well, so like in Massachusetts, uh, something that did not, I'm just like, I'm just do like this little segue and I promise we'll come back to the myth busting, but um, in Massachusetts, I was a part of the uh, homelessness coalition that did not even exist uh, ever and then it we we kind of like all uh uh joined in and did this in central massachusetts and the whole purpose of it was really to increase awareness and then to provide shelter to these homeless individuals in central massachusetts who were sleeping you know behind a dumpster or in the woods in the middle of winter in massachusetts mm. you know like we're we're talking like i know you know whenever i'm thinking about how these how the winters are. I mean, we're talking like, you know, teens or negative temperatures and people having no place to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so imagine. when you think of food access and honestly, like this, this organization was fabulous just, or and it's, it's still, it's still active. So I shouldn't talk to talk about it like it's past tense, but um, it, a lot of churches got together where they voluntarily are allowing that population to sleep in the church if it's under 32 degrees. Um, mm -hmm. But there's just, there's so many different layers around that when um, you've got politicians that are maybe just showing up for a photo op, okay? Let's just, I mean, that yeah. happens all the time. You got politicians showing up for a photo op and- Say it ain't so. Oh. <laughs> 
girl oh my gosh i will we will hold off on getting into that but i will have so another much day. Day. That topic. another day <laughs> that's another day another day but just like Anytime you, know, you say girl in the front of your sentence <laughs> <laughs> but i'm just you know i'm thinking like you know you want to have just like how um naisha you were talking about how you were in this meeting where it's like you feel like you're being used Mm-hmm. You feel like you're being used because it's like you are being used in mm-hmm. a way. I can't speak to that specific moment of time in your life, but I'm just saying you see this a lot whenever we get into um, politics per mm-hmm. se. So um, without going too far off on that soapbox <laughs> tangent there, it's just, I think that that's another big part of this conversation yeah. is mm-hmm. like, you know, the the sincerity behind some of these policies. Are we really hearing these voices? Right. There's been a big push recently. Um, I've been in several meetings where folks are like, we need to get the stories from the people who are experiencing food insecurity. And that always prompts a particular reaction from me because I'm a communication person. So I'm like, yes, you need the stories. But then I immediately, my first response is always, what are you going to do with them? Mm. Because I don't want to go ask somebody to share a story about what it's like to be hungry and poor and not be able to find food. We might call that exploitation. Yeah, exactly. And then take it back to, you know, somebody who is in a city or a county office, have them read it and be like, this is so sad. We need to do something about this. Let's assess this and move on. And Mm -hmm. it's, I, that's asking a lot from people who we already ask a lot from. And so I, I will collect stories from people, but I will only share them when I see a really clear pathway to an ethical and responsible way that you're going to use it to try to actually help benefit the people who told the story to begin with. A hundred percent. Yes. And I think that ties in really well to the last myth that all help is helpful, right? I'd like, wish it was, but it's not. It's not. (laughs) I, we'd like to think it is, but it's not. I think, go ahead. Um, sometimes I've, uh, you know, people have good intentions, Mm. you know, you know, it's the, for me, it's the intention behind the help. But if you are so, uh, disconnected from, the people, if you're disconnected to the issue, then your help can be seen as a hindrance, you know, in, in a lot of cases. Or, yes. you know, we've had the conversation, you mentioned it before, Amber, as far as like the savior complex or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to you, Marianne, about, you know, we don't we don't want to have that type of savior complex when you come to this neighborhood because it's so rich with history and the people have been you know, um, they've gotten a bad rap from just the the situation that they were placed in, you know, a couple of years ago that had such a damaging effect on um, generational wealth for mm-hmm. the people that lived in the neighborhood. So, you know, when you, when you create a problem, you're the cause of the problem, but then you try to go and solve it by not really solving a problem. <laughs> but just throwing in extra stuff that will will not have any type of impact on the people's lives in that particular neighborhood. And then you leave. So you leave it worse than you had when you first, you know, came to the neighborhood. And so that was one of the the problems that, that came up, you know, and and I talked to you, Marianne, about it. And a lot of the other folks that were part of them, like, just don't come to this neighborhood, tear it up say you fixed it or you tried because they'll say oh we tried but nobody you know wanted to engage into this this type of activity and we were trying to help no you weren't trying to help you Mm -hmm. were just really it was almost like a guilt like you Mm -hmm. felt you were trying to help your conscience by going into a neighborhood and Mm. seeming like you're helping but it's really part of a a guilt that you might have that could have been passed on by your mm-hmm. ancestors or could have been passed on by your parents who didn't do um, enough for you know certain people. And maybe you feel guilty about that, but don't allow that guilt to, um, to tra- transform into something that's not really helpful at all for people um, that live in a neighborhood. And I just, my whole thing was like, just don't, if you're going to do it, just don't leave. You've got to be, be patient mm. with the people that live in the neighborhood and they got to trust you. 
because yeah. they've lost a lot of trust in mm-hmm. the city and the county. Absolutely. They lost a lot of trust. Like, I mean, we we are when it snows in in North Carolina or when it snows in Greensboro, our streets are the last streets to be plowed. So we always say, "Well, the sun is our plow," mm-hmm. because the sun melts the ice. Because we're not going to get the salt trucks. By the time the salt trucks come down our street, the ice is basically gone. And this this happens every single winter that we have like a lot of snow. It happens all ever since I was younger. And so they're the you know we're the the neighborhood that gets forgotten about when it comes to certain things mm-hmm. um, in in the city. And so yeah, these people. And the neighborhood don't trust, you know, certain organizations to come in to try to help mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they've been getting the short end of the stick for years. Absolutely. Well, and all help. What I'm hearing you say is checking a box doesn't actually help. So being able to say, oh yeah, the salt truck went there. Did it get there in time? Did it get right. there in right. to do any good? No, it didn't. So you know, you don't get to check your box just because you think I'm, I'm supposed to do this thing. It's not, a, right. I want to do this thing. It's like, not, I'm passionate about doing this thing. It's like not, I would like, grocery store. like build the or grocery the, store. Or yeah, the, I did the thing. Or the insincere, it's not even just a checking box. It's the, it's the insincere pat on the back. Like that's, right. yeah. uh, that's what we got to watch out for sometimes. Cause it's I, the lack of empathy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cause that's, I think some awesome. of this, some of this is tied to, and I, I want to make sure we, we talk about this a little bit, the idea of a lot of our, a lot of people generally, not mine and Nyusha's in particular, but a lot of people generally, our food activism and advocacy is still rooted in charity models. Mm-hmm. And the way that I think about this is we've got to fill gaps to make sure that people eat and don't starve. Yes. But if we stop there, we're missing the larger systemic things that need to change in our food system and our economic system to make sure that food insecurity is not a problem. And so here's what I mean by this is that we rely a lot on food banks and food pantries in order to do this work and in order to make sure that people can fill that gap and immediately have the food needs that they have. And I'm not here to diss food banks and food pantries because they do provide that help in filling that gap. At the same time, we can't stop there because in many cases, what we'll find is that, you know, well-meaning, a lot of pantries are based in churches. And I, again, I don't want to like rail on churches with this, but there are a lot of times that congregations will say, oh, look, we've done God's work. We've handed out food yeah. to the poor people. Let me pat myself on the back and then we'll keep going on and we'll keep saying how wonderful we are. Mm-hmm. And again, great. You're helping make sure that people don't starve. But if you stop there, you're missing out on all of the structural barriers that are keeping people in poverty. You're, you're missing out on some of the larger conditions that make grocery stores not want to come into a neighborhood. And so yeah. looking at those bigger issues are incredibly important and pushing it more toward that systemic food change mm-hmm. is what's really needed. But what's involved in that, I think, is the part that's hard for people to get past, which is the poverty piece of it, mm-hmm. because it involves building up the wealth of poor people. Yep. <laughs> and as we've seen in conversations right now, I mean, right now around the Federal Infrastructure Act. Um, the Let's Senator talk about West it, Marianne. <laughs> who is holding out because he has quietly said, I don't want to give poor people more money because they're going to go spend it on drugs. I'm like, how do we get past that? Because this, right. I, I, that's not... Yep. Missed True. The <laughs> Missed the mark there, buddy. Right. I mean, we've got really clear examples of this. One of the um, one of the farmers markets that I work with, they're two sister markets, and um, one of them operates in a slightly more affluent neighborhood, and one of them operates in a, in a more low income neighborhood, and they kind of pair up so that they can share resources a little bit. Mm. And they have a SNAP EBT doubling program. So if you have SNAP EBT, you can come and you can run your card at the market. And if you run it for $5, we'll give you $10 worth of tokens that you can go and spend at the market anywhere. So it helps bring in income to the local farmers and business people who are at the market, but then it also provides the extra incentive for the people who are low income. And these programs, not just here in our markets, but I mean, this is a pretty popular program that really started up about 2010-ish in terms of of trying to double SNAP dollars. People use it. it provides not only an incentive, but it provides a way to increase people's buying power to buy healthier food options. 
So when they get those kinds of resources that increase their material wealth, they're using it to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. And those are the majority of cases. There are times when I will bring this up and have this conversation with my students and I will inevitably have somebody who says, well, where I have the problem is with the people who use their snappy BT cards and go to Costco and buy a bunch of stuff and then go sell it at the flea market. I was like, how many people do you know who do that? Who does like, it? I know. <laughs> and he's like, like, well, I don't know so anybody random. personally. And I was like, well, I know lots of people personally who use it and double it and go to farmer's markets because they care about their health and they care about their, their larger food systems. And I think we need to start figuring out ways to push past those charity models so that it's not just about here, poor people, we're going to give you something so you don't starve. It's more like, you know what, we're going to take a look at some of these larger structural issues that are keeping you from being able to make the choices that you want. And also while allowing you to give back in your local community to support a local farmer, like that is a full circle model that works for everybody. Yeah. System change. That's right. That's right. That's a system change we're talking about (laughs) needs to happen. It needs to happen. It does. I'm grateful that you brought that up. I know we've talked about so many important myths that hopefully the listeners are feeling have been debunked. Um, If not, I challenge you to send us an email with your questions, your comments. Let's get another discussion going because I don't think this stops here. I can see us having more discussions about this in the future because systems have to change. Status quo, what we've done has gotten us here. It's not going to get us to the next level. So we've got to keep these conversations rolling. So I appreciate y'all spending this time. This was an incredible discussion. I did want to leave a little time at the end. Was there anything we didn't have a chance to cover that you feel like people need to hear or that you want to share today? Or anything else that needs to be debunked perhaps that we didn't touch on? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Is this where we shamelessly plug our book? Yes. Yes. I do have have a quick question. (laughs) I I do have a quick question though, alongside, I mean, yes, I do think people should take a look at y'all's book. And I think there's a, there's some great case studies in there where people could learn a lot. Um, Absolutely. I would love though, uh, for y'all to also touch on letting us know and our listeners know, you know, what is something that we can do as in on an individual level where we can contribute toward making a difference in this arena that seems to be so stuck right now. I always encourage people to start off by figuring out what has already been done and what is currently going on. Mm -hmm. And that's really a first step if you wanna get involved in any sort of activism or advocacy. If you go into a space without doing your homework ahead of time, people aren't going to even want to begin to build trust with you. It's that Mm. point we were all talking about with Naisha earlier, that taking time to build that trust is incredibly important. And the way that you do it is by demonstrating that you're going to show up. Mm -hmm. Like I had to show up for like three years in Warnersville before anybody would even take me seriously, (laughs) like honestly. (laughs) And um, even though people were like, oh yeah, we like Marianne, but like, It was three years before I finally felt like people actually trusted me enough to take my advice on what was going on. And I've been in so many meetings where people brand new have come in and have said, oh, well, this is what you need to do. And little do they know we've already tried that three times before. Right. And simply by mentioning that project idea, people aren't going to take you seriously. Mm -hmm. So really take that time to make friends, get to know people get to know the organizations and the neighborhoods that are most affected by whatever it is that you're looking at. If it's homelessness, if it's homelessness, it's job security, if it's food insecurity, like doing that groundwork first is so important. So, so the idea of listening conversation as opposed to trying to start a new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea of listening before you start talking. It's, it's yeah. a good one. <laughs> Shocking, really. (laughs) But actually, I think now is where that segue to the book really makes perfect sense. Yeah. Although, Naisha, do you have anything that was the one thing you see? Oh, I was I was going to say you could just start start out by going to farmers markets and um, you know talking to some farmers because okay there are some farmers that actually do help 
you know, neighborhoods that are struggling with, um, you know, food insecurity or um, not having enough food. And if you can just, just talk to them, go and listen to, you know, what their ideas are, because, you know, a lot of them would agree that, you know, you need to, you know, we need to do something about this food thing. We, we mm-hmm. got to do something about getting their food to, you know, multiple different types of people and not just, you know, being at the farmer's market and having to sell their food. Um, um, also, yeah, so I agree with Marianne, just listen, like, you know, so many times, you know, we, Marianne and I would be in a meeting and we would just kind of give each other this look like, there they go. <laughs> there they go. They, they're talking like about something we already done. We would they, even they tell they them ahead of time, don't go there. We would say, hey, let's have a bigger conversation than just food access. And we'd right. get to the end of the meeting and they'd be like, all right, what's the most important thing we learned today? And they'd be like, food access. And we're like, oh God. No, <laughs> yes. like, no, no, that's not it. Like, just listen. <laughs> You know, we wrote on the board. We were in these small right. groups. You know how they break you up into small groups and you have like conversations with the people at your table. Like we was like, oh, we already know. You know, let's just <laughs> let me be the representative and let me talk. And and you know, it would just be like nine heads. And mm-hmm. then at the end, you thinking they understand, but then mm-hmm. at the end, oh, this is what we we took away from them. Like, mm-mm, that's Yes. it's that but, um, word of that intersectionality no. that we're missing yeah. right yeah. it's right. that key word across access and poverty that's the piece that we've got to hone in on as a community mm-hmm. and as individuals um so kind of going back to doing your homework mm-hmm. i feel like this is where y'all's book comes in because <laughs> it's fantastic homework yes. <laughs> and it's, been, it's a fantastic way for people to learn more, get to know the, the stories and the different um, details that are out there that so that you can actually feel a little bit more informed as you enter in into an advocacy role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would, would you like to say uh, again sure. the name of your... We could, we could talk a little bit and more where to about find that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now you should... I love it. it. <laughs> hey, hey. hey. For the hey. folks on YouTube, Don't be they'll shy. be able to see that. Mine is, mine is sitting right here. We've got we've it. got the book cover showing over here so that our YouTube <laughs> subscribers can see it. <laughs> I love that. Nice. I love the cover, by the way. It's beautiful. I love it so much, too. When we got a copy of it, because it, it went through fairly, it went through a variety of different phases, and uh, we were able to give some commentary on the way. And then when they finally got it, it was like, yes. So, yeah. um, but it is, it is available through the University of California Press. You could get it directly from the publishers if you'd like. If you need it fast, you can order it through Amazon. Um, we're often encouraging people to go to local bookstores to get it. Um, if you live in the Greensboro area, they have it at Scuppernogs. And so uh, go check that bookstore out or contact your local bookstore and have them order it for you. Um, Love it. And uh, we just really, I think it's a really important book in terms of kind of what you said earlier, Lindsay, about having that space where you can start the homework from. Um, This is a way that we were able to capture a piece of Greensboro's history doing this kind of work so that if people wanna continue it, they don't always have to start from ground zero. And we also have, there's a a website that we created, not alongside the book, but before the book even came to fruition. There's this really great program out there. It's called Tiki Talkie. It is not TikTok. (laughs) I mean, Um, have y'all been getting more hits lately? Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, It's a timelining website. And we were able to kind of chart out a timeline of all of the events and activities, the policies. It's where we've linked all of the newspaper articles that have been written about food in Greensboro, um, any reports that have been written about food hardship and and its relationship to our community. We linked all of that there so that people have resources that they can use to do that kind of back work. And so I guess if there's a second thing that you should do after the building the trust and the listening is the uh, documenting and helping people really get a sense of what has happened, what's happening now, and what could happen in the future too. Mm-hmm. And how, what a gift that y'all have created that blueprint for folks in your area. So I think that's incredible. And we'll make sure that when we post this episode to all the platforms that we provide these links in the show notes for everyone to be able to find y'all um, and to be able to support local bookstores and grab your book as well. Thank you. Yes. 
Yes, yeah, definitely snag, snag a copy of Everybody Eats, y'all. Yay. <laughs> For sure. But this has well, been a, an amazing conversation. It really has been. And I, I do think great. this is, yeah, this has been fabulous. I'm so glad that y'all were able to make this happen. And um, I do really hope sincerely that we can continue this conversation um, throughout the year ahead and just kind of, you know, keep learning. I think that's what this podcast is all about is just keep learning because there's so much like you think, you know, you don't know. There's so much more to the other side of the coin. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So true. Well, thank you all so much. If you'd like to um, find out more about these wonderful people who've joined us today, we'll be sharing that on the What the Fox Instagram page, What the Fox podcast. (laughs) Sorry, Um, I just dropped my microphone. I'm sorry. (laughs) Y'all, people... Listen, this is just who I am. You're going to get to know me real well in this podcast. I'm a klutz. And I know I, that our listeners could not just see that, but that just happened. The YouTubers I will see it. I retract my statement about putting you at a standing desk. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I actually think it'd be safer myself. But <laughs> All right, y'all. We appreciate you so much. Until next time, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. 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 And we all say Everything is gonna be just fine It's gonna fall into place The sun is gonna set on your terrible day